0: Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck F. Betters in Bear, Delaware. Visit markinc.org where you'll discover many free sermons and resources that will equip you to walk by faith and offer help and hope to the hurting. That's markinc.org at markinc.org. Micah chapter 5, please, in your Bibles. Micah chapter 5. You know how many of the prophecies surrounding the nativity, the birth of Christ, were foretold hundreds of years before? The fact that he would be born of a virgin, prophesied in Isaiah. The fact that he would be born in Bethlehem, of all places. The city of bread, the house of bread. The fact that he would have to flee to Egypt, and that he would come out of Egypt. That he would be a Nazarene. The fact that God would, would, would bless this earth with an incarnation of himself, all of those pre-incarnation appearances, all of those theophanies where Jesus revealed himself in the Old Testament for just moments were all foreshadowing the day in which he would come into this world in the flesh. All of it was prophesied. You know, the great blessing that I enjoy even sharing that with you, if his first coming was so on schedule... What must his second coming look like? Are the affairs of this world? Newspaper articles that you read? The brutality of evil regimes? Are all of this a picture of a God who's out of control? A God who has lost control? This is what the, the deist would have you to believe. The deist is the theologian who says, oh yes, there is a God, but he has simply wound up the clock of time And he's just letting it run, but he's detached. He's really not in control. He's just letting the circumstances work themselves out. Do you believe that? You know, if I see governments rise and fall at his will, when I look at all of the very specific prophecies that were fulfilled exactly the way they were foretold, In the Old Testament, when I see how God is opening up a vista of knowledge to us to show us that the signs of the time are becoming more and more evident, that as this happens and that happens and the other thing happens, all of these these points of interest are are coming to a climax where, where God is fulfilling what he promised to fulfill in coming again to this earth. When I see all of that, I have to conclude, you know, Chuck, he's that awesome. And he must be in control of your life, too. Nothing escapes him. No tear that I've ever shed. No heart that's ever been broken. No pain in my body. No alienation or conflict. No loss of a friendship. None of that has escaped the sovereign control of a God who just as he controls the affairs of governments, controls the affair of my home. you believe that this morning? Our God is in absolute control. We looked last time we were together at this passage in Micah that talks about his birthplace. He says in verse 2, Micah 5, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, a Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. In other words, one whose beginning transcends time. In other words, he has no beginning and he has no end. This ruler, this one who will come to rule the nations, this one who will be the promised deliverer, of the people of God, this ruler over Israel. says in verse three, he will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. In other words, God is going to gather the nations together. He is going to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth together. We are the people of God of Israel. We are the Israel of God. We are the ones in labor. We are giving birth, or new birth, to the elect of God. We are the ones who are commissioned with the responsibility of gathering from the four corners of the earth those whom Christ has promised to rule. The last time we were together, we talked about what this ruler would do, the work of Israel's ruler. It's spelled out in that Malachi passage. It says in verse 3, he will reunite and restore the nations. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. In other words, he will bring together his people. He will reunite. He will restore the nation. It says in verse 4 that he will care for his people and he will give them security. Verse 4 says he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, They will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. You and I live securely because God promises to care for his people, to give us security. It says in verses 5 through 9 that the ruler will destroy the enemies of Israel. You know, you and I have some pretty serious enemies this morning. The people of God have some pretty serious enemies. Now, we can name some of them. There are nations that oppress Christians. We talk about the oppression even in our own country. The fact that being a Christian usually means somebody's going to call us a name. Well, let me talk to you about this for a moment. If you mean by extremist one who believes in the absolute inerrancy of the Bible, I am that person. Today when you're called a right-wing extremist fundamentalist, a lot of us back off and say, no, 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 that's not me. That's not who I am. And we proudly depart. And when we're in arguments or debates or discussions with our friends and they look at us and say, you really believe that Bible is inerrant? They ask us that question with Almost a judgment in their minds, almost a criticism in their minds. How could you be so unintelligent as to believe that this Bible is the Word of God? How could you be so idiotic? And we back off. We become ashamed of the gospel. You know, their strategy has worked, it's worked when I take a stand against bills like House Bill 99, you know what immediately they're going to do? Here's here's the the immediate label I am going to be given is what? You are a homophobe. You are a homophobe. This is what you do when you can't win the argument. Call them names. I think we need to start calling some names. How about Christian-phobe? You're just a Christian phobe. You know, you're just an inerrancy phobe. Throw Throw the word phobe out there. I mean, people will understand when you throw the word phobe out there. It's ridiculous. What do you believe? If you say you believe it, then when it's attacked, stand up for it. Or don't believe it anymore. If you can't lay your life down for it, Jesus said. You're not fit for the kingdom of God. If you put your hand to the plow and it gets a little rough and you hit some rocks and you turn back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God, he said. If a few names are going to hurt you, if a few insults thrown your way are going to hurt you, what would you do if you were a Sudanese Christian? What would you do if you were a Vietnamese Christian? What would you do if your faith literally was going to cost you your life? What would you do? We can't even write a letter opposing a, an immoral bill. We're afraid we might be labeled. Ruler of the nations. He says, I'll give you Security and I will destroy your enemies. You know, the greatest enemy we face is beautiful. We've made Satan out to be a Dante-type, inferno-type of, you know, horns and people whose necks roll around in circles and exorcist-type demons. He's not that at all. Satan's an angel of light. You know, there was a reason why the Bible talks about him as the star that has fallen from heaven. A brilliant star. There is a reason why Satan was put in charge of worship. Don't believe what you've seen. What, don't believe the, the myths that you've seen about Satan being ugly. He's not ugly at all. In fact, he rarely tempts you with something ugly. He often tempts you with something God has created is beautiful. He just disturbs and distorts it. Satan is an angel of light. You need to understand, he is a powerful enemy whose head has been crushed. Think about that. His head has been crushed. So, even though he is a powerful enemy, he is a defeated enemy. The victory has already been won. The victory is already yours because you served the victor who laid his life down and in the process his heel was bruised, but Satan's head was crushed. Now you need to understand something. In the process of that crushing, God did not destroy him utterly. He still runs loose like a hungry roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The thing you need to understand is that he has no power over you unless you will it. He doesn't make you do something. We're not in a Flip Wilson theology. Remember Flip Wilson back in the 70s? What did he used to say? The devil made me do it. That's how we think. Somehow or another we sin because we just have no control. If his head has been crushed, how is it that he still has power over you? By your own will. You know why you sin? You know why we sin? This is a deep, deep theological issue. I hope you understand what I'm going to say. I'm going to use some deep, highly technical theological terms. Here's the reason why we sin. I looked this up in a book. We sin, I hope you understand this, because we want to. We sin because we want to, because he presents to us something very beautiful, but he presents it distorted. And we say, hey, that looks good. You know why it looks good to us? We are so sold out to the counterfeit. We don't study what's true. If you filled your mind with what's true, then when the counterfeit appears, it'll stick out like a sore thumb. Amen? When you study the truth about what your marriage is supposed to be like, here is God's template. Here's here's what God says a man's supposed to be. Here's what God says a woman's supposed to be. When you get into trouble, it ought to stick out like a sore thumb. We have violated the word. You know why we did it? Because we want to. We face some terrible enemies, don't we? The promise here in Micah is that the ruler. Has already defeated our enemies. Well, I want to go one step further. Turn to Matthew chapter 1, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 1. The most boring chapter in the Bible is Matthew chapter 1. So and so begat so and so, begat so and so, begat so and so, begat so and so. Who cares? Well, you should care. It's in there for a reason. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. I'm just going to concentrate on that. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, out of all the terms the Bible could have used to talk about this genealogy, out of all the terms that he could have used to talk about who Jesus Christ was, he says, here is the record Of the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew and Luke, by the way, trace the genealogy of Mary and the genealogy of Joseph, both to point to the same thing, that Jesus Christ is the son of David. Why? To fulfill all prophecy. Why do you think so much of the Bible tells us about the life of David? Who cares? Why would you care about who David was? Out of all the kings that ruled, out of all the kings that served both Judah and Israel, why does the Bible spend so much time telling us about this one king named David? Because the Messiah would come from his line. It's not about David. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. It's about David's life pointing us to the Messiah. So you know what that tells me right away? Everything I read in David's life is pointing me to the Messiah. Now let's take the most defining moment and let's make a little comparison. The most defining moment in his life was when he slew the giant. Let's make some comparisons. We know, first of all, that both David and Jesus came from Bethlehem. That tells me something. Fulfillment of a prophecy. Prophecy, fulfillment. Type, antitype. The type is David. The antitype is Christ. The prophetic picture or snapshot is David. What he pointed to and pictured is Christ. Both came from Bethlehem. Secondly, they were both chosen and anointed by God. Specifically, they were anointed by a priest. In David's case, who was the priest who anointed him? Samuel. In Jesus' case, who was the priest that anointed him? John the baptizer. Remember, Jesus' baptism was his entrance into the priesthood. Thirdly, both were exiles and persecuted before they were crowned. David was an exile before he became crowned. He ran for his life from the madman Saul before he actually sat on the throne. Jesus was persecuted and put on a cross in order to be crowned by his father. Father, into your hands, he said, I commit my spirit. He went to the cross in order to gain the crown. Goliath dared Israel. How many days? Forty days. Satan dared Jesus. How many days? Forty days. Forty days he was tempted in the wilderness 40 days he was was offered power. He was offered a a pain-free life if he would just simply bow down and worship. Goliath stood out there in that field and taunted Israel. And he taunted them again and again and again just as Jesus was taunted. David picked up five stones to slay a giant. The Bible tells us he picked up five but he only used one. He picked up five, but he only used one. Jesus defeated Satan when he went to the cross. Many scholars believe that when Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross to destroy the power of the law in our lives. Because you and I stand guilty under the law. Where is the law defined for us? In the five books of the Pentateuch. That's where the law is defined. Some make an equation between the five stones and the five books. That Christ was defeated, or Christ defeated law. Christ defeated the the guilt of the law by his death on the cross. The Bible tells us Goliath was a strong man. In fact, Satan is compared to a strong man in Matthew chapter 12. David cut off the giant's head with his sword. Christ overcame Satan with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is of the lineage of David to fulfill all prophecy, yes, but to point us to the victory that he gained for us by defeating Satan. Just as David defeated Goliath, Christ defeated Satan. And he was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Lahem bread Beth house, the house of bread. What did Jesus say of himself? He said, I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread of God that has come down out of heaven. If you eat of this bread, you will never go hungry. You see, Jesus is the bread of God. The Bethlehem of God. The bread that justifies. Takes our sins And acquits us before the law. The bread that sanctifies. That conforms us to the image of Christ day in and day out. By faith or by force, you and I are being conformed to the image of Christ. So that one day when we are presented to Him, we will be a bride without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. Why? Because it is the bread of God that sanctifies. It is the bread of God that glorifies. One day we will sit at a banquet. We will eat of that bread. And we will never go hungry. Because Jesus is the bread of God. That justifies. The bread of God that sanctifies. The bread of God that glorifies. Jesus Christ, son of David. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck F. Betters in this program brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other free sermons and resources.